Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. What I'm going to suggest to you that the greatest miracle was not the creation of the cosmos. It was not even the miracles that Jesus did. It was not even the extraordinary miracles recorded in the Old Testament. At Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. It happened 2,000 years ago, but it's worthy of celebration today. Do we really appreciate, though, the enormity of the miracle that Jesus' birth was? Do we realize that Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born in Bethlehem? He was in existence with God himself at the creation, but became flesh, was born and took on human form in Bethlehem. The gravity of those words takes some thinking about. Dr. Corbett is exploring the New Testament book of John in a series titled The Last Gospel. Tonight, the word became flesh. Let's join him now. So we have the, the account now of John's gospel. And he has written his gospel with a deep burden for his people, the Jews. He obviously had seen some of them, not all, some of them reject the preaching of the gospel, rejecting the, the message that Jesus the Christ was indeed the Christ, the anointed one, which is what Christ means, and also the promised one, which is what the word Messiah means. And many Jews did not believe that, and John's heart appears to have ached. And so he wrote his gospel primarily to reach Jews, but very cleverly writing almost certainly from Ephesus. He wrote it so that Greek thinking people could also appreciate what he was telling them. That Jesus wasn't just the Messiah of the Jews. He wasn't just the saviour of Israel. He was the saviour of the world. And so very intentionally, John does not labour to tell us anything that we already know from Matthew, Mark and Luke. They're called the synoptics because they follow the same, basically the same framework. And they're telling the same events from three different perspectives. John's gospel is coincidentally the length written in the length of a papyrus roll. And so you'll notice that when each of the gospels, uh, well, particularly Matthew, uh, Luke and John, are roughly the same amount of words. And that's about the amount of words in Greek that you can fit on a scroll. They didn't have sticky tape back then, unlike today. So John was very careful in selecting what he wrote. He wrote in what I would consider to be something that I, I have to suspect was something that he himself was not, perhaps not aware of. His gospel is a division of sevens, which is pretty clever. There's seven chapters. There's seven I am statements by Christ. There's seven sermons that are cited and there are seven signs that are given. John counts the first two and expects the readers to count the other five. And that's not as easy as you think, by the way. We'll see why as we go through this. If I was to ask you, from your knowledge of the Bible, what is the greatest miracle recorded in the Bible? 
the greatest miracle recorded in the Bible. I'm guessing some would immediately default to Genesis 1.1 and say, well, the, the creation of the world, the creation of everything in the world, which we would call the cosmos, which encompasses not just our solar system, but all of the solar systems, the ones that we know about, the ones we don't know about, the ones that, that are so far flung we still haven't discovered them yet and we know they're there because of the light that kind of reaches us we can tell there's something there we're just still trying to figure it out that's a miracle and you're right that would be a miracle but I don't think that's the biggest or greatest miracle in the Bible you might think well there's some pretty big miracles in the Bible the creation of man within that that's a miracle to create life and for those who think, oh, that life, creating life is nothing, uh, you want to try it sometime. Because the, uh, the, uh, Dr. Uh, James Tour, one of the world's leading nanobiochemists, synthetic biochemists, has tried and says this, I could give you everything you need to assemble life. I could give you the best equipment in the world. I could give you the brightest synthetic biochemists in the world. I could give you as many as you want and you still won't be able to create life. So you'd have to think the creation of life was a pretty big miracle. And you would be right, but I don't know that it was the biggest miracle. You could look at the deliverance of Egypt, uh, out of Egypt, of Israel, and you say, well, that was the miracle. It's told, retold more than any other miracle in the Old Testament. And I go, yeah, well, that's true. But I don't think that's the biggest, greatest miracle recorded in the Bible. You could talk about the raising of the dead that happened in the Old Testament, the opening of blind eyes, which had never happened in the Old Testament, that Jesus did. And you could name some of his miracles as the greatest miracle demonstration of all time. Craig Keener, one of the world's experts on the book of Acts, who's written numerous volumes on the book of Acts, did a footnote on Acts chapter 3, verse 6, which talks about Peter and John at the at the temple gate where the lame man was there and the lame man begs for money and Peter says we don't have any money but what we do have we give to you rise up in the name of Jesus and walk and he rises up and walk and Craig Keener points out in what became a footnote when he says by the way accounts of this type of thing still happen today and he went out to document recent accounts of miracles of that sort happening today and if you'd really like to see it I'll show you and he ended up writing all the accounts he could find in two volumes about that thick that was his footnote on Acts chapter 3 verse 6 and you could say well that's extraordinary that would have to be the greatest miracle to, to incite all well no I think there was something greater than that now if I was to ask you what is the greatest miracle many men here I know what you would say it was the creation of woman. You had better. Especially married men. You should, well, darling, I thought it was the creation of woman and you in particular. And in and very married couple, I would say, yeah, yeah, well, let's, yep, yeah, okay, yep, yeah, let's move on. Because what I'm going to suggest to you that the greatest miracle was not the creation of the cosmos. It was not even the miracles that Jesus did. It was not even the extraordinary miracles recorded in the Old Testament. Not even 
the miracles that the apostles did in Jesus' name. And Jesus even said, greater things than these will you do. I don't think it was that. And I want to answer that question as we go through what we're going to look at now in the first 14 or 15 verses of John's Gospel. I've told you about the occasion when it was the Apostle Andrew who suggested, so tradition has it, that, John, you should write your account of your experience with Jesus. We know that John the Apostle was one of the earliest apostles of Christ. He followed Jesus from the moment he was baptised by John. So he was one of the first apostles after Andrew to follow Christ. And so these two apostles later in life are reflecting on, on what they encountered with from Jesus. We see that John has, I mentioned, he really wanted to reach his fellow Jews. And so the opening verse of John resembles Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. In fact, they're the exact words he uses, in the beginning. Genesis 1 tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But John says, in the beginning, and he goes back before that beginning. He goes back to a beginning before there was anything. And he tells us something about that beginning that the writer to the Hebrews tells us as well. And Hebrew, the word Hebrew is another word for Israelite or Jew. It says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, this is going to be profound. And in writing... To the Jews, he gives that echo of Genesis 1 in the beginning. But he also has something to say to Greeks. To the Greeks, they had a quest for the ultimate reason, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate thing about the universe. And that thing they called the Logos, which is where we get the word reason or study. That was their quest. So in John 1, verses 1 to 2, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And we've seen from Hebrews 11.3 that that was, every Jew knew that, that God created by just speaking his Word. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So that beginning goes way back before the beginning of creation. All things were made through him. So you might have an argument with a Jehovah's Witness who does not believe that Jesus was the eternal God. But it's very difficult for the Jehovah's Witness or those who promote that false idea to get around this statement. All things were made through him. All things. And if the Jehovah's Witness tells you, no, but Jesus himself was created. There was a time when he was not and the Father created him as the first thing that he created. The problem is it says Jesus created everything. How could you create yourself if you don't exist? Do you see the problem? In him was life and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not 
overcome it. These are rich in Jewish meaning. To the Jew, their quest was light. To the Greek, their quest was knowledge. And to the Romans, their quest was glory. And John's touching on each of these things. He says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, the quest of every Jew, that all might believe through him. And this is why we're going to see the word believe, as I mentioned in our opening session, the word believe occurs a few times in the Gospel of Matthew, about a dozen or so times. It occurs about a dozen or so times in Mark. It occurs about eight times or so in the Gospel of Luke, but it occurs in the Gospel of John 87 times. That's why we're referring to this as the Gospel of Belief as well. John tells us about John the Baptist. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Do you reckon he knew that would happen? Do you reckon the all-knowing God knew that that was going to happen? The answer is yes. And you know what? He still came anyway. Similar to what Josiah said this morning over communion, he died in our place, taking upon himself our guilt, our shame, even before we were born. It's remarkable. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, as Josiah said, sons and daughters of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so there are some here and you have never believed. There are some here and sadly with, with the memory of tears at this thought, there are some here in this church who will be a part of this church from the youngest age that they can remember. They will grow. They will go off to do what they do with their life. And tragically for me as a pastor, in that process of time, they would never have encountered Jesus. That breaks my heart. I, I hope that for those who have, you join with me in praying for every person, not just young, young, not so young, and older people, that we all might come to know Jesus. Because this is the will of God. So when we consider the greatest miracle that's ever happened, I, I, I know that the creation of the cosmos, that, that's a pretty big one. That is a really big, that would, I can understand that. But here is why I'm going to suggest that was only the third greatest miracle that's ever happened because it enabled God to do the greatest miracle that's ever happened and that is this the incarnation I'll explain that word in a moment of God the son 
was the ultimate miracle. The second miracle was his resurrection. The third one was the creation of the world itself that enabled it to happen. And here's what we read in John chapter 1 and verse 14. This is the central text of what we're looking at today. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. This expression, the only son, is so rich, most of us, I suspect, will probably miss the significance of it. He's the only son. Now, you could come to me and say, oh, but pastor, in the Old Testament, it talks about Israel being a son to God. That's true. It talks about the kings of Israel, particularly David and Solomon. Solomon in Psalm 72 being described as the son of God. So how can John say he was the only son? Because all other sons after the eternal son are adopted. But Jesus was the only eternal son, the eternal son of God. So the question I, I would have then, how close was he to the Father? How close was he to the Father? I met someone a couple of weeks ago who has adopted two children. They were, one was a few months old, one was a few more months old when they adopted them. And they had to go through all kinds of psychological scrutiny to be qualified to adopt, which is amazing. But one of the things they they are told to do by the psychologists is to ensure that these, child know, these children grow to know that they actually have biological parents and that you are their adopted parents. But here we have Jesus. He has always been the son. He has always been the son. This was one of the arguments of a guy by the name of Athanasius who when the very error that Jehovah's Witnesses embrace today. It's an error known as Arianism. The idea that Jesus was a created being. And Arius was a bishop from North Africa who was promoting this idea. Who also said, well, if he was a created being, then the price that he paid on the cross may not be perfect to atone for the sins of mankind. Therefore, we have to add to them. And it was Athanasius, a young secretary to a bishop, who said, this is not the truth. And he wrote a book when he was 23 years of age. Good grief. In about 280-something AD, AD 280. 23 years of age. It's called On the Incarnation. It's one of the most profound books about Jesus that has ever been written. C.S. Lewis said every Christian should read it every year of their life. He wrote the foreword to the modern reprint of it. And he said this is all, something like almost perfect literature. A 23-year-old. 23-year-olds know nothing. And he wrote this profound book. And this was his argument. The one who had always been, which is what John the Gospel says, 
became human. He didn't become the son of God then as Benny Hinn teaches. He was always the son of God and Athanasius put it this way. We know that God is the eternal father. Eternal means always being, didn't become, has always been. And if God is the eternal father, there's really only one thing you need to become an eternal father or to be, I should say, the eternal father. And that's an eternal child. In this case, an eternal son. So here we have John making these profound statements about Christ. Can I tell you, the, resur the resurrection is, is amazing. The ascension is amazing. But the incarnation is so deeply profound, it should cause you to rethink how important Christmas is. How important it is. In fact, this thought after Athanasius wrote on the incarnation, the church began to contemplate what this young man wrote and in the third century, they said, he's right. This is so profound. We should, we should stop every year, just stop once, one day every year, and, and really reflect on God became flesh. They call that Advent. Here's the thing. I used to love Jimmy Swaggart as a preacher when I was growing up in the 90s. I was so impressed. Sorry, something funny happened with the audio. Um, he was considered to be one of the most powerful preachers. Do you, remember, do you remember Jimmy Swaggart? I remember Jerry, never saw you do this when you're an evangelist on the road, but he used to flap his Bible like a butterfly. And I thought, man, I'm going to try doing that. The problem is I have so many notes in here that go flying, but he used to do it. And he would, he would, I remember one point he was looking down the barrel of the camera and he was saying, Mr. President. And I'm thinking, he's talking to the President of the United States. This guy, man, he must really know his stuff. And he put out a magazine called, uh, whatever it was, uh, Jimmy Swaggart Ministries, I think. He was a humble little thing. And he said this in one of those magazines he put out. Christmas is a pagan event. It was started as a pagan event. It's completely pagan. It's got nothing to do with Christianity. He made a very, very convincing argument for it. It was very, very compelling. The facts he gave, the historical data he gave was, was really amazing. There was only one little problem. It wasn't true. Apart from that, it was brilliant. But it wasn't true. You know, the early church recognised how profound the incarnation was by establishing, they established an annual feast. And you know why they picked the 25th of December? Because I've heard people say, oh, we don't know when he was born. He could have been born any time. Not so fast, Jack. The early church adopted a very, and I say the third century church, adopted a very early tradition that seems to be the case throughout Jewish history that someone's birth corresponds to the timing of their death, as in, it's uncanny. And they figured that we know that Mary would have received 
the Holy Spirit's visitation around about a Passover in about March, around about March 25. When you add nine months to that, you end up at December 25. There was a winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere. There is a winter solstice, but it's not December 25. It's around, they thought, between December 21 and December 23, not December 25. Professor Glenn Sunshine, who's a professor of history, has an article you might be interested to have a look at where it's called About the Date of Christmas. And he says, every year at Christmas time, we hear arguments that our Christmas celebrations are little more than a warmed over paganism. We hear that the date was selected to compete with pagan holidays or worse, to adopt pagan holidays into the church and that our Christmas practices originate in paganism. What are we to make of these arguments? Are we buying into paganism in our Christmas celebrations? Professor Sunshine says this, the answer is no. The arguments for the supposed pagan origins of Christmas are overblown. And even when, uh, where our celebrations include practices with pre-Christian roots, that itself doesn't mean we're practicing paganism. In this article, the article that he wrote, uh, we'll look at the arguments for the date of Christmas. So in talking about the date, people routinely tell us that we do not know when Jesus was born. But we celebrate Christmas in December because the church wanted to compete with popular pagan Roman holiday known as Saturnalia. The Jesus myth theory, which says that Jesus never actually lived, but that his story was stolen from paganism, takes this argument one step further. It argues that December 25 was picked as the date of Christmas because it was the birthday of Horus, Mithras, Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, and a host of other dying and rising deities. Jesus' mythicists also claim that all these gods were born of a virgin, that three wise men showed up at the birth, that each of these incarnate deities had 12 followers, etc. The Jesus' mythicists thus conclude that the church stole these stories as they invented Jesus. But this is all nonsense. First, there is no question of the nature of the stories associated with the gods' births. In all cases, the myths surrounding the births of the gods take place outside of historic time. In other words, they're not anchored in actual real history. They are in a mythical past, and though legendary, kings may be associated with some of these births. Those kings cannot be placed in history either. In contrast, Jesus' birth occurred at a specific point in history. These are known historical figures, Herod, Pilate, Caiaphas, etc., that are connected with his life. In other words, unlike the allegedly parallel myths, Jesus' life occurs in the context of verifiable history. He goes on to give why the church in the 3rd century adopted December 25 as the day to celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God. The point there is, that people say things, especially when they say things on the internet, and there are some people who go, well, it must be true, it's on the internet. Can I tell you that is not reasonable? There are things that people state on the internet and even pretend like 
Professor Sunshine has cited that they were raised of a virgin, died, rose again, had 12 followers. Nearly all of those stories occur sometime after the 5th century. Did you hear that? And you can, that is verifiable that what I'm saying is these myths were spawned as a result of Christianity, not the other way around. Now let's come back to the point. I have said that the incarnation, which means God taking on flesh, is the most profound miracle of all time. That the eternal God would not merely appear as a human, but he would actually become a human is bewildering. If you were God the Father, how might you do it? You would just send in an adult. That's my son right there. He, we've made him human. But he didn't do that. He chose the normal process of a conception of a human being. Please don't tell me this is oh, ho-hum. This is profound. The God who created the cosmos, who did all of those miracles in the Old Testament, became a single cell, fertilized human, called a zygote. This is extraordinary. The risk he took is extraordinary. This is not ho-hum. This is not, yes, past the cranberry sauce and where's my present it's not that kind of let's celebrate the incarnation we should stop and we should pause on christmas day that this is a tradition that has carried on for nearly two thousand years that the church has celebrated the incarnation of jesus the eternal son of god we read in John 1.15, John bore witness about him, John the Apostle tells us, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. Why? Because he was before me. And the writer of Luke's gospel is very, very particular in telling us that John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus was born to Mary. So what the heck does he mean? He can only mean one thing. Jesus was the eternal Son of God. That word incarnate, just so you get it, incarnation means to become flesh, to become human. God did not, he did not actually merely appear in adult form and entered the world, but he entered through conception without the aid of a man. Without the aid of a man, God the Holy Spirit conceived God the Son in a young virgin girl. And that expression that Luke uses, virgin, means she was of marriageable age. And it fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14, which we will see in through this series. His conception was miraculous. It involved the Holy Spirit and a young virgin girl. I want you to note something here. In Luke's account, it says this of Mary. He came to her, and this is Luke telling us that Gabriel had appeared 
to Mary, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I want you to notice, greetings, O favoured one. That expression, favoured one, the word is charis, which is the word we translate usually into English as grace. What is grace? It's getting what you don't deserve. Mercy, you may know, is not getting what you do deserve. But grace is getting what you don't deserve. In other words, she had nothing in herself. One commentator says, if there was anything special about Mary, it would have been noted at this point. But it wasn't. Because she was ordinary. In Luke chapter 2, she, uh, sorry, further on in Luke chapter 1 rather, what we call the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, she says, Blessed be God, my Saviour. Who needs a Saviour? Those who have sinned. She was not sinless. The Bible says, For all have sinned, including Mary. So she was graced by God. And John the Apostle tells us two facts about Jesus. Number one, he was greater than Moses. For a Jew, that's a big deal. Secondly, he was the eternal God. For Greeks, Romans and Australians, that's also a big deal. He was the eternal God. And this is how John puts it. John 1, verses 16, 17 for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, was made, he has made him known. See what John is telling us? You want my perspective on who Jesus was? Let me tell you who he was. He's the creator. He's the eternal one. He's the one who made this whole thing. And he came as a zygote into this world. He grew as a, as a human being would normally grow. He had a mother with all her flaws like every other mother has got her flaws. He was adopted by Joseph as his son. And later on we read that Joseph knew Mary and they had at least another four children and they're named in Mark's gospel. So here we have someone whom God chose to be the woman with the womb who carried the eternal son of God. And please don't think I'm not honouring her because she is, she is being honoured in scripture. Would you please stand? It is my hope that you come away with a greater understanding of who Jesus is as a result of us exploring what John has to say. I want us to worship now and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to invite us to rededicate our lives to him, especially at this Advent season. Father, we do, we thank you, we praise you that you sent your son in the form of a zygote, the smallest stage of human development, a miracle of conception, a miracle that the 
God who created the universe could come into the universe like the author of a story, writing himself into the story. And Father, I pray that we might come to realize that the Jesus who walked the shores of Galilee, the streets of Jerusalem, through Samaria to reach people who thought they could never be made right with you is the same Jesus today who offers people forgiveness. No matter what you've done, no matter who knows what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, how many times you've thought God could never forgive me, you are not a million miles away from God. You are one prayer away. One prayer that says, Jesus, save me. Please forgive me. You pray a prayer like that from your heart. I know that today could be the first day of the rest of your life. A day where you come to know him. A day where everything looks different. The world will look different. The trees will look different. People will look different when you surrender your life to Christ. Father, I pray that we, your church, would come to know Jesus, the incarnated one, the one who is now forever incarnated. And Father, I pray that you would help us to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select The Last Gospel Part 2 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, John's Gospel is the clearest account of the true identity of Christ. How extraordinary that the creator of the universe would stoop to become one of us. It's more astounding than any of us can perceive. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.